I want to invite you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We have been working our way through this very, very difficult text of Scripture. Romans chapter 9, specifically verses 14 to 23. This is a very, very hard, difficult text of Scripture in which both to preach and to hear in several ways. Our dear brother in the Lord, Dr. John Piper, pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, has tried to explain to his fellow pastors in the ministry why God inspired hard texts in the Bible for which pastors and their congregations ought to grapple. Listen to what he writes. The implications are huge that God has made a book so crucial in the preservation and declaration of saving truth. These implications become more remarkable because the book has some parts that are really difficult to understand. What does it mean for life and culture and history and worship that God has given Christianity a book with some mind-straining texts and then built the church on it? These thoughts were inspired, John Piper says, as I was preaching through Romans and came to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. He says, my brain almost broke trying to understand the complexity of that paragraph. So I stepped back and asked, what was unleashed in the world by the fact that Christianity not only declares salvation through faith in Jesus, but also builds its arguments and fixes its message in a book, the Bible, and in letters like the letter to the Romans and in paragraphs like Romans 3, 1 to 8. And he went on to ask, what does it mean that God should inspire such difficult paragraphs in his book? What did God unleash in the world by building his church on the foundation of writings like these? And then he suggests that there are four reasons, four things, desperation, supplication, cogitation, and education. He says, number one, desperation. That is a sense of utter dependence on God's enablement. He says, I should feel desperation regarding these hard texts and the need to understand them. I should feel desperation, a desperate dependence on God's help. That is what God wants us to feel. That is something He has unleashed by inspiring these texts. Number two, supplication, prayer to God for help. He says this follows from desperation. If you feel dependent on God to help you see the meaning of a text, then you will cry to Him for help. 
Number three, cogitation. He says, thinking hard about biblical texts. He writes, you might think, no, no, you are confused, John. You just said that God wants us to pray for His help in understanding, not to think our way through to a solution. But the answer to that concern is, no, praying and thinking are not alternatives. Yes, it is the Lord who gives understanding, but He does it through our God-given thinking and the efforts we make with prayer to think hard about what the Bible says. So when God-inspired texts like Romans 3, 1 to 8, and I would add Romans 9, 1 to 23, He unleashed in the world an impulse toward hard thinking. And fourthly and finally, He says education. The Lord has inspired hard texts in the Bible, according to John Piper, because it is meant for the training of young people and adults to pray earnestly, to read well, and to think hard. He concludes by saying this, If God has inspired a book as the foundation of the Christian faith, faith, there is a massive impulse unleashed in the world to teach people how to read. And if God ordained for some of that precious, sacred, God-breathed book to be hard to understand, then God unleashed in the world not only an impulse to teach people how to read, but also how to think about what they read, how to read hard things and understand them, and how to use the mind in a rigorous way. The writings of the apostles, especially the hard ones, unleash generation after generation of education. Education is helping people understand something that they don't already understand. Education is cultivating the life of the mind so that it knows how to grow in true understanding. That impulse was unleashed by God's inspiring a book with complex demanding paragraphs in it. He's right. And we cannot look any further than Romans chapter 9, especially verses 14 to 23, that merits, deserves, even demands our rigorous thinking. Listen to it as I read Romans 9, verses 14 to 23. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Multitudes of people throughout the ages have tragically bailed out on endeavoring to carefully understand the flow of thought and the implications of understanding Romans 9, verses 14 to 23. I've even known of pastors doing the opposite of what Dr. Piper has encouraged us to do, who have been preaching through the book of Romans, and after Romans chapter 8, simply went to Romans 12. It's a sad thing, certainly not what the Apostle Paul intended. He's given it to us, Romans 9, 10, and 11, for us to understand, however difficult it may be. And you remember from last time I said that from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, the Apostle Paul was describing his great sorrow and unceasing anguish over the fact that his fellow Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh, had been cut off from Christ. They had rejected Jesus as Messiah, even though it says in Romans 9.4 that they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, Paul says, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. They even have been given patriarchs, the Apostle Paul says in verse 5. He says, to them belong the patriarchs, the promises, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul is endeavoring to say that even though the Israelites of his own day have been cut off from Christ, they have been given various promises. They are the chosen people. And God, through the Apostle Paul, has given an indication that potentially, or so some say, that maybe these promises will not come to the Israelites. Paul is deeply saddened, so much so that he says, if it were possible, I might, even though it is not really possible, replace myself with these brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, so that on behalf of my life, they could otherwise be redeemed. Now, of course, Paul knows that that cannot happen. But if it were possible, he says, I would pray... Verse 3, for I could wish, is really that word for prayer. For I would be praying that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. That is, physical brothers. My prayer to God would be 
the cutting off, as it were, of my own salvation on behalf or for the sake of my own people, my fellow Israelites. But as soon as Paul says such a thing, he hurries to answer a question that has undoubtedly come to these believers in Rome, made up, of course, both of Jews and Gentiles. If what you're saying is true, Paul, then what about all of these promises of God? If these Israelites have shunned their Messiah, if they indeed are cut off, have the promises of God failed? Have they failed? And that may be exactly what some people are reporting, maybe even reporting to this church in Rome. Have the promises of God failed? It might be so in some minds. And even the case that Paul makes here in Romans 9 verses 1 to 5, they are accursed and cut off. What's the answer? Romans 9, 6. But it is not, Paul says, as though the Word of God has failed. Not for one moment have the promises of God failed, Paul says. You see, he goes on to teach us that not every Israelite is truly a member of Israel. True Israel. Genuine Israel. He says in the latter part of verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Paul is saying, Not is it the case at all that everybody who is physically descended from the man Abraham and who would be called an Israelite is truly a part of those who are the chosen of God. He says in the middle of verse 7, But it is through Isaac shall your offspring be called or named. God made a promise, and He fully intends to keep that promise. And that promise was to give Abraham a child, Isaac, and he would bless this people through Isaac, And even through Isaac, all of the nations of the world, the Bible says, would be blessed. Paul says, this means, verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh, not just because you were born into it, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, reckoned. It's the same word that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament when it refers to Abraham when he was reckoned through his faith as righteous. The children of the promise are reckoned to be righteous because God has not failed in His promise. He will do what He says. It just isn't through every single individual Israelite. And someone might very well come along and say, why not Ishmael? He was the son of Abraham. Paul says, no, through Isaac. For this is what the promise said, that even through Isaac, 
there would be someone else. So it's Abraham to Isaac and Isaac with Rebekah to someone else, that is Jacob, and then to all of those who come after that, the true children of the promise. He says, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And that is Isaac. And he says, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, these twins, Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love but Esau I hated. So what's the answer? How is someone made a child of promise? Paul's answer is most shocking. Because I would suspect that someone would come along and say, well, it's by faith. Children of promise are recognized by God through their faith. Every Israelite, or in our context, every Gentile person are recognized, spiritually speaking, as blessed by God, delivered by God from their sins, on their way to eternity in heaven with God, based upon their faith. God sees that faith, sees what you are going to express toward Him, And through this Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever as God to be praised, God looks down through the corridors of time and He sees those who are by faith going to receive this Messiah who's not going to reject Him but who's going to receive Him. And they're the true spiritual offspring of Abraham. Guess what? Paul doesn't say anything about faith here. It is true that faith is the instrument by which someone receives Jesus Christ, affirms them, affirms Him as their Messiah. That is true. But Paul doesn't mention the doctrine of faith in this text. He takes it back prior to time and he explains unequivocally in verse 11 that though these twins were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might stand not because of works even the works of faith you say well faith is not a work Paul says I ground someone's being chosen by God on the basis of God's call. It's not only not because of works, and it's not also because of faith. Faith is the instrument, but faith isn't the ground of somebody being right with God, somebody who has a spiritual relationship with God through Christ. It's not because of works. It's not even because of faith. It's because of God's call, he said. And to emphasize that, he says in verse 12, the older will serve the younger. 
Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And someone in Paul's day, and certainly many, many people in our own day, immediately will say, that's unfair. A God can't do that. He's being partial, arbitrary, capricious. He should love Jacob and Esau equally. No, Paul says, God being the perfect, holy, sinless, gracious, sovereign of the universe, He created all men and He has the sovereign right to choose whomever He wills and He has the equal and sovereign right to reject those whom He wills to reject. It isn't based upon the inherent goodness in a person. It isn't based upon their faith. It is the sovereign God's freedom to choose to save every single person He wills to save. And someone's going to say, well, why doesn't the sovereign God choose or will to save every single man without exception? That's a better plan. That way everybody gets in. You know, Scripture repeatedly says He has chosen not to do that. Or someone's going to say, if He desired, uh, He could have condemned everybody who has sinned in Adam, which is everyone in the world, of course, without exception. That's what we learned in Romans 5.12. But He hasn't chosen to do that either. He's chosen to save some A number, by the way, that the book of Revelation says no man can count and is likened to the grains of sand by the seashore. It's an uncountable number. And to be true to this passage, he has chosen to reject others who are forever hardened in their sin. This is the truth of Romans 9. And the obvious question of a person comes right to the forefront and Paul anticipates it in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, is there malice in God? Uh, Is this otherwise His animosity at His creatures? Is this an arbitrary vengeance? Is this unfairness? Is this unrighteousness? Is this ungodliness in God? Well, see, those are fighting words for Paul. And that's why he says, by no means. In other words, he's saying, you're messing with the character of God now. You're messing with me. And what's infinitely more serious than that, you're messing with God. You're messing with His character. It's not somebody who genuinely wants to try to grapple with these hard texts. As John Piper says, it's not that. It's not someone who says, I I believe this truth I want to affirm this truth. It's just so hard to swallow this. It's so hard to understand this. It's not that kind of person that Paul is responding to. It's someone who's actually saying, by implication, there must therefore then be injustice with God. By no means. And you would immediately expect Paul to say something like this. God wants to pick everyone. This is the insipid weak God of most of evangelicalism. God really wants 
to choose everyone. He wants to pick them. He, he really does. He's looking for someone or something in a man which he could choose between him and someone else. The grounding or the basis between these men must be something inherent within the heart of man. And once I find that in the heart of man, then I'll choose him or her. For the others, if I don't find it, then I won't choose them, and then it'll be all them and none of me. And Paul doesn't do that at all, does he? He goes right to the Old Testament account of Moses and his leading of the Israelites out of Egypt, and he seeks to defend the character of God this way. Here's his answer. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You know what he's saying by that? I'm God. Who has the right to question whether or not there's injustice in me? He doesn't go anywhere, Paul, to defend the character of God, but to the sovereignty of God. That's what he's saying here. God has the complete, sovereign, holy right to choose whomever He wants for the dispensing of His wonderful mercy and compassion. He isn't bound by anything in man. That's why He says, before they were born, before they even came into existence in this sin-cursed, fallen world, I've chosen one, I've rejected the other. The older will serve the younger. Jacob I love, Esau I hate. I will have compassion and mercy upon Jacob. I will reject and judge Esau. Their destinies aren't going to depend on their own human will or exertion. That's what he says in verse 16. It depends not on human will or running, but it depends on God who has mercy. And as I said a moment ago, somebody's going to say, yeah, but he ought to do that to everybody. Or someone's going to say, or if he's just this God of vengeance and His holy wrath against sin is going to be put on display, then He should just wipe everybody out. Either everybody gets in or nobody gets in. You know what Paul's answer to that is? Oh, you're right. Everybody deserves to be blotted out. And these Israelites, they are cut off from Christ, severed from Him. But if I for my own sovereign purposes, take out of the mass of sinful humanity some that would be saved, I have the right to do that. I have the sovereign right to do that. And what do we say about that? God, You are so merciful. You are so gracious that there would be any among us who would be the recipients of your gracious mercy? Is it not true that if you believe in Jesus Christ as you sit here, you are the recipients of the wonderful, gracious mercy of God? We were all headed to hell. We were all headed to perdition. 
We all deserved to go there. And it was the sovereign, free act of divine grace that stopped us on the road to hell and turned us around so that we might see divine mercy. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look at verse 17. He adds a very hard truth. We want to emphasize the mercy part, but here's this hard text. But it's a truth nonetheless. Verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, if God is to be praised in the salvation of sinners like these Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, then Paul goes even further with the hard-to-swallow truth that God is also to be glorified in the sovereign hardening by His own powerful hand, Pharaoh and Ishmael and Esau in order, verse 17 says, so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You know how his name is supposed to be proclaimed, therefore? He is the great deliverer for all of those who receive his divine mercy. And he's also the great destroyer of all of those who are under His wrath. He's both. And His name is to be proclaimed as both. And that's why Romans 9.18 says this, So then He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. No, no, I can't go there. You've heard them, I've heard them, people say, My God isn't like that. I could never believe in a God like that. Well, Paul anticipates that very objection. Look at what he says in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills, then how can God still find fault with someone and even condemn someone who is thereby hard toward the gospel? That, that just can't be fair. If, if someone is hardened to the things of the Lord, then who can resist his will? The will of the Lord that they be hardened. And then God will condemn them forever for their unbelief? That's not fair at all. And maybe we're not talking about someone who's not merely, as I, not merely, as I said, questioning how all these things can be. But remember, this is a hard text. It's inspired by the Lord. We've got to think. We've got to think. How do we understand it? Maybe you're not in that category where you're saying there's injustice with God. You're just trying to figure out how can these things be. Think deeply. But maybe there's that person who in their heart, just as Paul anticipated and no doubt had, 
Maybe even in the church here, certainly outside of it in his own day, someone who's actually taking a swipe at the goodness of God, who's taking great umbrage at the will of God. It's not like those, like you and me, for example, who don't distrust the good purposes of God, including the damnation of sinners, but rather it's someone who is refusing to acknowledge that God has the sovereign right to do what Paul is ascribing to him. They will simply not agree with the plan of God. They want everything of the goodies about the kingdom of God. They want no one excluded. They don't accept the doctrine of unconditional election. They specifically reject the distinguishing grace of God to choose Jacob over Esau, Isaac over Ishmael, Abraham over the others of his day. They're impugning the very sovereign right and freedom of God to do what he has planned to do from eternity past. Notice what Paul says to them in verse 20. But who are you, O man? Emphatic. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? His response to someone like this regarding the doctrine of unconditional election of individuals to either mercy or wrath is to say, in effect, Do you understand who you're addressing here? I mean, folks, this would be an excellent opportunity for Paul to say something like this. I mean, this is the very anticipated question on this dilemma of a doctrine. Well, here's the answer. God looks down the corridors of time and He sees that foreseen faith that someone's going to have in Him and therefore He chooses them on that basis... And he looks down through the corridors of time and he sees those who are going to reject him and therefore he rejects them on that basis. And so the ground of his mercy or his rejection is based upon these people and how they respond. And I ask you the question, if that's the case, then the grounding of their acceptance or rejection is in God or man? You tell me. It's in man. It's in man. The very basis, the very grounding of his choosing someone is based upon God looking down through the corridors of time and seeing those who will receive and those who will reject. This is a perfect opportunity for Paul to say something like that, to ground it in something other than the sovereign freedom of God. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he says, who are you to answer back to God, O man? Will you, as something molded, Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? This is so reminiscent, isn't it, of Job? Who very, very closely came to the thin line of questioning the very character of God and for which if he had stepped over the very next portion of the line, he might be in this very category. He came right up to it. And even there, what was God's response? Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you? And he went on for a couple of chapters, didn't he? 
to, to answer the dilemma, not as we would want, but in this way. I'm the creator God. Look at all of these things I've done. Who's questioning me about these things? Who has the right to question me? And you know Job's response after those chapters of just, just full force authority and sovereignty coming from this wise and holy and loving and majestic God, Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. Who am I? Who am I to question? A human being has no more right to question the sovereign of the universe than does a piece of clay, its potter. I mean, think about how silly that is. If clay could talk, you think that that's what the clay would say to the potter? Why did you make me like this? The audacity of it all. Piece of clay telling the potter what to do, or even worse, once it's finished, the clay pot saying to the potter, why did you make me like this? It's unthinkable. This is a great opportunity for Paul to hedge a little bit here. And to say, well, if you, if you understood it a little bit more, in fact, if you understood it, there's a sense in which God is sovereign and there is a sense in which He's not. Uh, there's a sense in which He sovereignly chooses, uh, but there's also a sense in which He looks down and sees people who will receive and reject Him, and somehow in the mysterious nature of the sovereign God, He sort of works everything out. Now, what have I just described for you? common thinking within evangelicalism. Got to think hard about these things. Got to be rigorous. And somebody's going to say, but what about human responsibility? Yes, the Bible teaches human responsibility. No question about it. And I could marshal a number of relevant texts that show everybody that mankind is indeed responsible to believe in Jesus Christ. And if they refuse to do so, they will be cast aside, judged, rejected by God. No question. And they will be responsible because they are also responsible for their sin against God. Someone's going to protest that. Where's the aspect of human responsibility in this passage? And since the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, did he just miss it? Did he just flub up? This is a great opportunity. This is the opportunity in the entire Bible to speak of human responsibility right here where he's saying the twins weren't even born. But he doesn't do it. Folks, that is mind-stretching. By now, like me, you're, you're on overload. Tilt. Doesn't compute. Your brain is broken. How can this be? I can even show you in Romans 10. Look at Romans 10. Look at verse 9. Here's human responsibility. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's human responsibility right there. You must confess with your mouth 
That Jesus is the Lord of the universe. And you must believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And if you do, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You've got to believe. You've got to confess. For the Scripture says, verse 11, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. He's Lord of the two major races of mankind, Jew and Gentile, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. There it is right there, human responsibility. One chapter removed from Romans 9. What what was Paul thinking? Why didn't he get chapter 10 somewhere into Romans 9? Got to get it somewhere in there. Where's the comma? Where's the next clause? Where's the phrase that says... But there's also human responsibility. Don't forget. How could the same guy write, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, and then says, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, there's the dilemma. Someone says, well, how can I be saved if I'm hardened? I can't be saved if I'm hardened. And of course, you know the partial answer to that. Who's ever hardened doesn't want to be saved. You say, yeah, but it's because God's doing the hardening. If He didn't lift His hardening, they would otherwise want to be saved. They would want to respond. They would love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart. I just know they would. What do you base that on? The inherent goodness of man? What's the heart of man? Desperately wicked? Deceitful? Is that what he'd do? Douglas Moo says this, Paul never offers, listen to this, Paul never offers here or anywhere else a logical, quote-unquote, solution to the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility that he creates. Never resolves it. Paul is content to hold the truths of God's absolute sovereignty in both election and hardening and of full human responsibility without reconciling them. He said we would do well to emulate his approach. We should. Somebody asks you, you believe that God is absolutely sovereign and that He chooses whom He ever chooses to choose and He hardens whomever He hardens so that they might be hard and yet God is seen as sovereign over all of that and yet man is also called upon to repent and believe in the gospel and if he does not follow through on that responsibility then he will be condemned forever. How do you reconcile those two things? You know the answer to that? It's a tension. I don't reconcile those things. I don't have the full grasp of the mind of God. You say, well, Paul, you've got a great opportunity right here to tell us. You you brought it up. You know, it's like when I do questions and answers and people ask me questions and I give the answer and then somebody might get upset. And I say, well, you asked me the question. Paul... You're anticipating these questions. No doubt they came up in your own day and now you're giving them the answer. You're not giving the qualified statements. Look look what he says in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? Notice that, same lump. 
one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use. You say, what's the significance of the same lump? Same significance it was that there were two sons born to one man and one woman. Same significance. He's just driving home the fact one time and again that it is not anything within this man or these men. It's not the fact that Ishmael had a different mother. It's not the fact that these boys came out of the womb and did things good or bad. And it's not the fact that there's one lump over here that he chooses for honorable use and one lump over here for which there's dishonorable use. He says, no, they have the same lump that the potter comes and he fashions one for honorable use and he fashions out of the very same lump one for dishonorable use. He's just driving this point home. Does he not have the right to say over the mass of sinful humanity, Jacob I love, Esau I hate? Does he not have the sovereign right to determine the destinies of his creatures? They're his creatures. Or to use Paul's own words here, the right to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use. What's the implied answer to that? Yes, he does. He has the right. He has the right. See, you have to figure out which category you're in. And I'm, am I one of those that doesn't question the character of God, the sovereignty of God? I'm just trying to wrap my mind around this seemingly impenetrable truth. Or are you one of those that say, no, I hate this doctrine. I hate it. Because it means I'm not in control. See, that's the issue. People hate this doctrine because they're not in control. Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath Prepared for destruction? Wow. I mean, Paul could have stopped, but he's nailing the thing down even more. He's just nailing it tighter and tighter and tighter. What if God? Think of it that way. Paraphrase. What if God? What if God chooses to do this? Do you have the right to question Him? What if God, desiring to do two things, here's a clause, to show His wrath. The second clause, to manifest His power, even if it means that this God who has these attributes of wrath and power also has an attribute of patience where He throughout time is so patient as He continues to see these vessels of wrath shake their fist in His face. Boy, macrithumia, that's the long-suffering of God. When He has the sovereign right to smash all opposition to Him. He has the sovereign right to do it. He's the sinless one. We are the sinners. And if there's somebody who is a vessel of wrath, dishonorable use, God has the right to do it at a moment's notice. And there would never be a question in the entire universe about the character of God, about the judgment of God, about the wrath of God. 
about the power of God. But he's so patient that he even puts up with, that's what that word endure means, he puts up with vessels of wrath all the way throughout the ages for two reasons. Three if you include the next verse. One, he's declaring his wrath because they will get what they deserve. And secondly, his power, just like he did with Pharaoh. What does he say in verse 17? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, says directly to him, God speaking, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. God let Pharaoh live, do what he did, harden his heart. God hardened his heart so that God, through those ten plagues, would show to all the earth that he's in control and that Pharaoh is not. And he let Pharaoh injure God's own people time after time after time. And there were ten plagues. And at any one of those intervals, God could have said, That's enough! My people are suffering because of you. That's enough. You're not going to do that anymore. I'm righteous in cutting you off right now. But he had a bigger plan. And that plan was to continue all those plagues all the way through And even to this very day, God says, I will be known as the destroyer of Pharaoh and his army. And I will be known as the deliverer of my people. Oh, they wanted it sooner than it was received. But they received it when God sovereignly said, it's time. That's that's this God that Paul portrays. And in the midst of it all, he's enduring with patience these vessels of wrath. Enduring them. Who are, by the way, he says, prepared for destruction. I've heard some people say, well, that's in the middle or passive voice. And that really means that God has prepared them in only one sense and that because it's in the middle or the passive voice, In the Greek text here, it's really meaning that they prepared themselves. Or that it was their sins that prepared them for destruction. But you see what that does? That really messes with the parallelism of this entire passage. It doesn't mean that. Maybe it's only spoken of in this way because it's charting two different courses, one in which God is preparing beforehand vessels of mercy for their eternal glory, and He's preparing others in a different way. And how's He doing it? With much patience. With much patience. He's preparing these vessels of wrath to receive their just deserts. They're going to receive it. may not be in their time frame. may not be in ours. Does not the psalmist say often, Lord, why aren't you working? Book of Revelation, Lord, how long? In my time and for my purposes and my sovereign right to do it. And I've got 
both wrath that's coming and if I delay my wrath for the sake of promoting the character of my power and I do it by at the same time enduring with great patience those who really deserve it, that's what I'm going to do. And if I do that, nobody can question me. Nobody can question me. And then... If that's all there was, we'd say, this is only a God of wrath. This is a God who exerts His power and He puts down all of these vessels of wrath. And Paul says in verse 23, in order that, not just this wrath and not just this power, but in order that, don't miss this, this may even be that those two things, the wrath and the power of God, are sussumed underneath this overarching purpose. And it is this, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He's prepared beforehand for glory. If He does give out His wrath, and if He does exert His power over those who hate Him. And if He endures with much patience these evil workers, Paul says it's so because He's wanting to extend His mercy to those that He plucks out of this sinful humanity and says, I set my love upon you. I want to love you. I want to love you. You see, somebody who recognizes that does not kick against this doctrine. You embrace it. And you say, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. I was was headed that direction. And you took me and you picked me up out of that miry clay and you set my foot on a rock the rock which is Jesus Christ. Listen to John Piper. I open with him, I close with him now. For those who, like myself, confess Romans 9 as Holy Scripture and accord it an authority over our lives, the implications of this exegesis are profound. We will surely not fall prey to the naive and the usually polemical suggestions that we cease to pray and that we abandon evangelism. If we did that, we would only betray our failure to be grasped by this theology as Paul was who prayed without ceasing and who labored in evangelism harder than any of the other apostles. On the contrary, he says, We will be deeply sobered, listen to this, we will be deeply sobered by the awful severity of God, humbled to the dust by the absoluteness of our dependence on His unconditional mercy, and irresistibly allured by the infinite treasury of His glory, ready to be revealed to the vessels of glory. Thus we will be moved to forsake all confidence in human distinctives or achievements and we will entrust ourselves to mercy alone. And the hope of glory 
we will extend this mercy to others that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. This doctrine isn't the death of evangelism. It's not the death prayer. It's the very infusing of it. You want to go out and tell people that they could be those very vessels of mercy if they would but repent and believe. Are you going to preach that message? Are you going to live that message? Let's do so for the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we do not for one moment, even though this truth is so hard for us to fully grasp, we cannot do it. It is nevertheless your sovereign character that is being put on display. And we don't want to question your goodness, your sovereignty, your wrath, your power, your mercy. You have met with us here and you are on display as both deliverer and destroyer. We glorify you in both. And we ask that you would take us humbled and allured so that we would preach this message so that all may come chosen by you to speak of the glorious future we'll have with Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.